Yeah, that's why I was thinking maybe like Napoleon or Julius Caesar might have been a more obvious comparison, but maybe that's not as exciting. Well, but obvious is obvious, right? It's time to look at history through an unlikely comparison. Today we will be considering the similarities and differences between two great conquerors, Alexander the Great and Hernán Cortés. How did these two men command their armies? What were their motivations? And what are some of the larger questions that emerge from comparing the conquests of the Persian and Aztec empires? Hello, this is Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom. You are listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Today I'm talking with Justin D. Lyons, Associate Professor of Political Science at Cedarville University in Ohio, and author of the book Alexander the Great and Hernán Cortés, Ambiguous Legacies of Leadership. We compare the Hellenistic king and the Spanish conquistador, as well as discuss Plutarch's lives. But before we begin, a quick thank you to our Classical Wisdom Society members who make this podcast possible. If you would like to become a society member and help support the classics, please go to classicalwisdom.com and click start here. Now, on to ancient kings and conquerors. Uh, You have written a book called Alexander the Great and Hernán Cortés, Ambiguous Legacies of Leadership, which is a very interesting (laughs) title. not intuitive. I think most people don't automatically put Alexander the Great and Hernán Cortés in one sentence. So yes, why did you choose these two guys? What? Uh, well, I was teaching a seminar called Warfare Ancient and Modern. And one of the books we were using for that was Victor Davis Hanson's Carnage and Culture. And he has a chapter on both figures. And he made some really intriguing comments in comparison and uh, that spurred me to wonder if, if that could be drawn up some more. And we were, in fact, reading in that course also uh, Arians and Abbasis in detail. And uh, so intrigued by this, I also picked up William H. Prescott's History of the Conquest of Mexico. It, I was tremendously impressed by the book. I, I love that book. And I began to see just how much there was, in fact, that could justify a pairing of those, uh, those two conquerors. So I put them together in part, I chose them in part because of their far reaching implications of their conquests. Um, They both profoundly altered uh, the world, uh, you could say. So they both overthrew empires, they both expanded the boundaries of the known world and in so doing transformed it in important ways. I also was intrigued by the ambiguity of, of both men. So you have the staggering scale of Alexander's achievements, of course, and the grandeur of his goals and his uh, deeds. But of course, they come at a tremendous human price. Um, so was he a glorious conqueror or a ruthless killer is the question you might pose. And the same thing for Cortez. Uh, He uh, demonstrated tremendous daring, resilience, skill in overthrowing a very large empire with a relative handful of men. And 
he achieved things. I mean, uh, this is little known, I suppose, but what he did, one of the things he did was break the Aztec's despotic hold over subject peoples in Mesoamerica. And he also put to an end their system of human sacrifice. But of course, that also comes at a great price. So was he an admirable soldier or greedy, bloody-handed destroyer of worlds? So that, that made a nice parallel between the two that I was intrigued to pursue. Oh, excellent questions. It's amazing though, Alexander gets the, the term the great and Cortez definitely doesn't. No, that's, that's definitely true. Um, Cortez is easily the least uh, popular of the two, but I think he's in many ways underrated. Um, in terms of his generalship, uh, he was a great commander, uh, really was. And um, he's also misunderstood in some ways, I think in terms of his motivations as well. So usually what you get is God, glory, and gold, right? Is justification for the conquest of Mexico understood to be an ascending importance. So it was really about gold and the rest were, God was a pretext and glory was a kind of means and gold was the, the real thing that they were after. Gold was the gold. Yeah, gold right, was yeah. the gold, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think the list actually corresponds to Cortez's uh, actual priorities. Uh, he was a pious man by the tenets of his creed. And uh, I offer as proof of that the number of times that he really put in jeopardy the success of his enterprise, indeed even his life, um, to preach his faith uh, to uh, natives in Mesoamerica. I guess that so, would have been a, a very big contrast between Cortez and Alexander the Great. Cortez believed in God, Alexander believed he was a God. <laughs> yes, there's that. But intriguingly also, uh, it is said that uh, at least initially, or some of the Aztecs believe that perhaps Cortez himself was a god. Uh, Quetzalcoatl returned. There was a prophecy of the return of Quetzalcoatl. And there are all these really intriguing coincidences. Uh, so the day on which Cortez sets foot on the Gulf of Mexico is the day in the Aztec calendar, calendar most sacred to Quetzalcoatl. The prophecy was that that God would return to Mesoamerica in what was called a one read year. And 1519 is a one read year. Uh, what's more, Quetzalcoatl is depicted as having white skin and a beard in the sacred texts uh, of the Aztecs and dressed in black. Uh, but in the Christian calendar, that day was Good Friday. So Cortez was dressed in black. Wow. <laughs> so really, really intriguing coincidences uh, that go on there. But I will say that Cortez never claimed, as useful as that, that would have been, could have been to him, he never claimed it, right? He never pretended that he was a god. Uh, he didn't encourage it. The furthest he went was not to openly deny it, <laughs> I suppose. So you were talking about a Cortez. What are, what's some of the differences in his character then between Alexander the Great with regards to their leadership styles? Uh, yeah, so like Plutarch, I mean, I'm concerned with uh, moral character, but the other aspect of the book was uh, leadership as the title suggests. So I was interested in both those things uh, going together. In terms of character, moral character, Alexander, obviously had great personal courage, um, perseverance 
He showed himself at times capable of self-control, generosity, mercy, and wisdom. But that has to be balanced against uh, the darker reports of his moral decline into egomania, excessive drink, uncontrollable rage, <laughs> paranoia, tyranny, the murder of friends, you know, not the sorts of things you want on your Facebook profile. Um, so Cortez also, great personal courage, determination, also forbearance, uh, piety, as I've suggested, steadiness of purpose for sure. But his legacy obviously contends with a durable historical record or report, impression, I suppose, of disloyalty, deceit, greed, and wanton cruelty. <laughs> so there's a dark and a light side to, to both men. Is there a way that just the role of leadership brings out these natural inclinations within man, like, or, or the kind of people who have deep inside them, these tendencies are the kind of people who are going to become leaders. Yeah, so people who ascend to leadership or obviously have a personal drive. So ambition is necessary. Some sense of larger purpose, uh, whether that's justifiable or not, but something that drives them forward, that keeps them on the hard road for sure. And both of these conquerors had that. In terms of their actual leadership uh, in battle, both of them exercised what John Keegan calls heroic command. So obviously Alexander is always personally present on the battlefield. He's riding with a companion cavalry. He's in the front lines. He's the tip of the spear. And uh, he was wounded many times. So it's with justification that he can chide the mutineers at Opus saying, you know, there's no part of my body but my back that does not bear a scar. So heroic command, but Cortez exhibited that also. Uh, he was also visibly at the head of his forces. Um, they are also seen to bear the burdens of their men. Now, Alexander a number of times did something like pouring, famously pouring the water out of the helmet in the Gedrosian desert, like if my men can't drink, I won't drink, right? So sharing the burdens of the men, which is one of the things I think that really creates a powerful bond. Um, Cortez did things that are similar, but of course he had less of a choice <laughs> in terms of the scale of what we're talking about and the nature of his conquest. And he also wasn't a king. You know, he's little more than uh, an equal to the other soldiers of fortune. So that of course made a difference, but they were both seen to bear these burdens and they both understood that they needed to foster a sense of common purpose with their men and sacrifice with their followers to keep them moving forward. Now that's sort of more necessarily strained in the case of Alexander, who's a king, obviously. Cortez is much closer in nature to his men. Um, and so no speech is recorded where Cortez boasts of his wounds because it's not remarkable that he had them. <laughs> you know, he was kind of first among equals. He was there in the front line. Uh, no one, be, everyone would expect him to be wounded just as often as uh, his troops. It's not true of Alexander, perhaps. Uh, plus both have to pre present a vision uh, of victory, a promise of reward, whether, wherever that is, wealth, 
gratitude, honor, glory, something like that. So they have to be motivators. And both Alexander and Cortez were great motivators. And uh, they inspired their men through action and through rhetoric. Speaking of which, I mean, you were saying that recorded speeches and how much do we know what they said exactly and, and how did they use speech for their benefit? Yes, well, as you know, in ancient sources, speeches have to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt. Yes. <laughs> Inventio. Um, and ancient authors are perfectly comfortable with that kind of thing. Herodotus, Thucydides, Tacitus, you see, see it in all those works. So whether those speeches are, you know, actually what they said, or as Thucydides says, you know, what they ought to have said. Yeah, <laughs> here's the gist. demanded, they say, you know, uh, is, of course, a question. Um, and, of course, with Alexander, the first-hand accounts are lost to us. We have Arian, it's kind of a parent conglomeration of some of those sources, but we don't have eyewitness accounts uh, in that case. Uh, it's similar with Cortez in the sense that our primary first-hand account is by Bernal Diaz, who was a conquistador himself, but he wrote about these events decades after they occurred. So he has to be remembering these speeches. Now, accurately, he remembers them. You know, we don't really know. Uh, there are also speeches in the account of the first historian of the conquest, um, uh, de Gomara but he was Cortez's own chaplain and secretary. So Cortez himself must have been the primary source uh, for, for those writings. So again, you probably have to take them with a grain of salt, but there are speeches obviously in, in Arian, which I primarily leaned on, but in Diaz and uh, Lopez de Camara as well. So uh, what do these speeches look like? Well, both of them share that they have to uh, face the fundamental challenge of keeping their men moving forward in the face of hardship, danger, and, uh, and possible death. So inspirational rhetoric clearly plays an important part. I'm sure know. at this moment, everybody's envisioning like Braveheart or you know, all the various right. yeah, reenactments, like you know, charge. Yeah. So the pre-battle speech is actually like, like Braveheart. You know, that's a crucial rhetorical moment when the need for energy and vigor is confronted most evidently by fear. So that's, that's a key moment, crucial moment rhetorically in, in both accounts. So, and they, they hit similar themes, of course. There's a confidence and victory. Uh, we're superior to them as fighters. Uh, we have tactical advantages. Uh, in case of Alexander, he liked to say we have a superior commander. Uh, we have a superior <laughs> always so <cause>. humble. <laughs> right, <laughs> we have a superior cause to the enemy. So these things will uh, carry us through. And these are basically the same devices that are used today. I mean, absolutely, yeah. Throughout all of history, most likely. Um, to throw in just another character then, like how would they compare to say somebody like Julius Caesar who also did a lot of conquering and was also with his army? I mean, is there a lot of historical characters that kind of can fit into this parallel or is Alexander and Hernan Cortes more uniquely similar than from other historical conquerors? Um, well, first of all, I think any commander in the field, uh, at least in ancient and medieval war, in early modern warfare, up 
to a certain point, rhetoric remains important on the battlefield. So you have to inspire your troops, uh, keep them moving forward, as I said, talk about the cause and all those things. So you would expect similar themes to be, to be hit there. Um, Caesar, of course, is writing Gallic Wars himself. So no it takes a bit, of a, <laughs> a bit of a different cast there. But you think of Tacitus, like um, think of Germanicus and Tacitus. There are long speeches there that he gives to his troops, especially to try to, um, to handle the mutiny on the Rhine with those legions on the Rhine. So you see that a lot in ancient sources as you go forward in historiography that happens less and less and less because we've become more fixated on, well, did they actually say exactly this? And if we can't know that, then we're, we're not gonna include it. Yeah, nowadays we basically just have historical fiction to sort of fill, fulfill that need of somewhere in between. We have to read Robert Graves or any of them are modern guys to, right. to, to, yeah. to fulfill that same like connection between facts and motivation and narrative. Yeah, I mean, so the purposes of ancient historiography are just different from modern. And so the conventions and so forth are different. One might argue at times more enjoyable <laughs> well, I would I would certainly agree with that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's why popular history sells so incredibly well. People still have a hunger for that sort of thing. You know, the academics uh, have a tendency to, you know, to get too fixated on uh, documentation and things like that. So they kind of lose the flow. <laughs> but yeah, the ancient historians, for my money, that's that's always the way to go. Well, it's just, it's, I just keep thinking as you're de describing these characteristics and leadership skills, like just automatically different conquerors and emperors are coming to my mind. And I'm like, well, why, why didn't you compare Napoleon or, or why not? And I, I do wonder, I mean, I guess Hernan Cortez, I mean, he did have this massive empire, but he, he might not be someone that sort of springs to people's minds when yeah. they think of conquerors. And I mean, like, I even lived in Mexico for several years, and I still didn't think of him, you know, so. Right, yeah. Well, and one of the things is, of course, it wasn't his empire. It wasn't like Alexander's empire was his. It was the Spanish empire. Yeah. And he fairly quickly receded into obscurity. So he had his moment in the sun, as it were, during the conquest. But he spends really the rest of his life trying to get out of it what he thinks he deserves in terms of reward and recognition. So there may be something to be said in Alexander's case for uh, dying at the height of one's glory. So you don't have to see what comes afterwards. <laughs> yeah, you always wanna leave a beautiful corpse behind, right? Exactly, right. I'm not sure that Alexander's is beautiful exactly, but his reputation uh, was certainly still at its height. Yeah. So yeah, if, if I had the time I would have written, you know, we could have just done the whole Plutarchian project and made an entire book of these comparisons for all sorts of conquerors. And uh, that would have been fun, <laughs> but I didn't have the time or the requisite knowledge to do it, so. Yeah, well, it is very interesting that, um, I, I think it's worthwhile people thinking about Cortez and thinking about the empires that were created over in, in Mesoamerica um, and, and those actions, because perhaps, you know, people in general knowledge don't give that region of the world's history enough recognition. Uh, I think that's true. 
I remember living in Mexico City and going to the Anthropological Museum there, and it's just amazing. Uh, and to see just how many of the different tribes and groups of peoples, I mean, we think of the Aztecs and the Mayans, and most people don't know beyond that. So uh, it, yeah. is, it really is a much richer and deeper history than I think uh, they get credit for. Yeah, I think Cortez must have been immensely pleased when he discovered that the Aztec empire was not monolithic that it had all these divisions and subdivisions within it that he could exploit and, and gain allies, the Totonacs and Flush Collins and so forth, that he could work with these people. Um, and sometimes work with them to make each other, attack each other, right? <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, certainly there were many, many native allies at the final attack upon Tenochtitlan. Yeah. Um, both the Persian and the Aztec empires were, were vast and diverse, but um, what, what kind of, what are some of the larger questions that emerge from comparing these two empires? Um, well, the empires themselves, uh, the character of their rule, I think is one of the primary ones. So as you know, the Greeks always like to characterize this conflict going way back, the Greco-Persian Wars as a conflict between freedom and tyranny or freedom and slavery. So you certainly get that in Herodotus uh, and, and other authors. And Alexander certainly tries to pick up that theme as part of his propaganda, I would say, that he was leading a kind of pan-Hellenic crusade for the freedom of the Greeks, uh, both to punish the Persians for their incursions, but also to free the Greeks of the Ionian Greeks from Persian dominance and all those sorts of things, so. Amazing that this is still a narrative to this very day. I mean, it's still the reasoning for wars everywhere, just about. Yeah, so regime questions certainly enter into it. The Greeks understood, or certainly presented starkly between their view of politics and the Persian view of politics. So the Persian empire, you know, founded by Cyrus the Great, um, he was uh, tolerant of different religions which uh, was a smart move because <laughs> there are a lot of religious divisions within that vast empire. And um, that helped to preserve the peace, obviously, and make the empire uh, easier to administer and to keep under control and all those things. Now, Cambyses unwisely abandoned that policy, especially with the Egyptians. So that's why the Egyptians welcome Alexander as a, as a liberator when he shows up. Uh, so how they rule, how they understand politics. What's the difference between the great king, Darius III in this case, and Alexander, a king of the Greeks, broadly speaking, or the Macedonians? So Arian, for example, and you see that they, his men can speak directly to Alexander, at least a certain echelon of them, the companions and so forth. And... Uh, you can't really speak directly to the great king or it's certainly, it's always a risky proposition. So regime question certainly entered into it. Same way with Mesoamerica, uh, the Aztec empire is one that dominates, as you said, a vast territory stretching from the Atlantic to the Pacific, many subject peoples held in subjection, uh, subject to taxation, um, contribution of human sacrifices 
uh, either voluntarily or through what were called the flower wars. Um, so there's this sort of, again, from the from a certain point of view, totalitarian kind of, or despotic system uh, that needs to be broken. Wasn't there like a tribe that was used just for sacrifice? Like they would have one tribe that they would keep alive just so they could use them specifically for... Um, uh, that was the Incans, uh, maybe. Uh, it's quite possible. There was there's a group of people in Tlaxcala who were the um, the bitter enemies of the Aztecs going way back, and they're often referred to as a republic. Stretching that term a little bit, but they were fiercely independent. And uh, some of the sources suggest that the the Aztecs didn't go in and then destroy them entirely because the wars with the flesh columns provided them with human sacrifice. So, yes. So that sort of thing, I think, did go on. Yeah, yeah. pretty dark. Yeah. yeah. Now, people have a little bit more difficult time thinking of Cortez as a liberator, uh, for sure. Yes. Especially and, uh, nowadays, I imagine. Yeah, and he wasn't driven primarily by political concerns, uh, for sure. But certainly uh, exploration, the desire for glory and self-advancement, uh, we're certainly there. The conversion of uh, new lands to Christianity, again, I think played a very large part in his mind. And I, I think sincerely. Um, and so the, you're sort of speaking more of, I guess, about the motivations of the conquerors, but right. I guess what, what are the major differences of the, the lasting effects of the empires? Well, um, the Alexandrian Empire is, of course, ephemeral. It basically collapses with his death when he leaves, you know, everything to the strongest, which is kind of a recipe for conflict. <laughs> and conflict certainly does ensue. They try to hold it together in a kind of partnership, the successors, you know, but it's divided up, at least initially, into various kingdoms. Those kingdoms, obviously, Hellenic kingdoms come into conflict with each other and weaken each other to the point where they're easy prey uh, later on for the rise of the Romans and so forth. So uh, the lasting uh, effect of the Alexandrian Empire is supposed mostly seen in uh, uh, Hellenism, the, the, the Hellenistic world, the spread of Greek ideas and culture much farther afield than would have otherwise been the case. So that's a very long lasting and very important uh, fallout from those campaigns. Cortez sort of indelibly establishes the Spanish presence in Mesoamerica and, uh, and below, of course. And that presence is obviously still felt. It's, it's been massively important culturally, politically, religiously, in every other way. So there's a very long lasting legacy that springs from his conquests as well. But of course, it wasn't driven by himself. So he wasn't exactly the captain of the entire project. He was the greatest, I think, of the conquistador captains, but he's, he's a part of a larger movement uh, that's going on. The Spanish empire probably would have expanded even without him. Yeah, I always, I always think of the second epilogue in War Peace, where, you know, you try to understand the role individuals have in history. And so, you know, bring up Napoleon again, you think of, is he the sort of the tugboat 
br bringing the ship of history away or the little row boat dinghy out the back. And um, right. it seems like that might be kind of a difference. I feel like Alexander the Great was moving history. I mean, he was part of it and obviously he was set up so much by his father, Philip II. But if Alexander wasn't Alexander, I don't think that would have happened. Yeah, right. I think you're right. So things would have been different. So as you know, Alexander was nearly killed at the Granicus River and was saved by Clytus the Black. And if his arm had been slower, the history of the world would have been much different if there had been no Alexander. And I, I think that's probably, it has to be less true for Cortez, uh, for sure. So, you know, Alexander would be what Hegel would call a world historical figure, right? Someone who is transformative, is driving history forward. Yeah, that's why I was thinking maybe like Napoleon or Julius Caesar might have been a more obvious comparison, but maybe that's not as yes. exciting. Well, but obvious is obvious, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> at least I, I hoped that someone would be intrigued. Like, why would he put those two together? Maybe I should... Maybe I should buy the book. <laughs> well, apparently, that, yeah, sorry. apparently not many people actually thought that thought about it that way. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I mean I did, you know you're you're right because I did immediately when I saw the the comparison go like wow that's I want to know more about that like maybe you just need more history nerds out there. <laughs> yeah, and again I would I would highly recommend uh, History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. He was a 19th century American historian. It's just a wonderful book. So you're talking about ancient historians. He's got a lot of those characteristics. Right? And there's, there are deep reflections on politics and religion and, and greatness and responsibility. Right. So it's a tremendously rich book. It's really wonderful. Well, I will most certainly pick that up. And um, yeah, I mean, I just find Mexican history fascinating. And uh, it's such a fantastic place, to be honest. I I just was overwhelmed when I moved there to find just the diversity of experiences, how different it could be from Oaxaca to the Yucatan to, you know, the little villages around Mexico City. They're absolutely just magical. Right. And it's so cool when you go to the Yucatan that the Mayans are still there, you know, that, that you right. have this continuous thread of history. It's, it's fantastic to go and eat the same foods and kind of throw yourself into history. Right, and you know, and the ruins that you have in Mesoamerica uh, rival the ruins to be found um, on the Nile. <laughs> you know, some very impressive uh, structures and cities, pyramids, step pyramids uh, are present there. So yeah, there's a real richness there, which I think you're right, is probably often overlooked. Yeah, and, and if, you know, you go to the, the Zocalo, the downtown, you know, and they've got that big cathedral, it's just perfect Spanish, massive, you feel like you're right in Spain, and then right next to it is the ruins of the temple that they've, they built the cathedral on, and it's this like the parallel worlds just perfectly, symbolically, looking at one just culture trying to jump on top of another one. <laughs> right. And, you know, one further parallel we don't have the tombs of either of these conquerors. So their graves are lost. Uh, you know, we may have some hopes that in Alexandria it'll be found, <laughs> but uh, Cortez was moved about a bit because he was a controversial figure uh, for a long time. So 
where exactly his resting place is, we don't know. Uh, well, maybe one day uh, we will find out, hopefully. <laughs> uh, now to finish up, can you let us know what you're working on now? Uh, well, I have recently essentially finished a middle grade novel set in the time of Alexander. Cool. Still looking for a publisher on that. I'm working on an article right now on war elephants. <laughs> and the larger project that I've been at for some years is actually tracing the influence of the ancients on Winston Churchill. Ah. So uh, again, going for, I suppose, the surprising, <laughs> not many people put those two things together, but there are a great many references to the ancients by Churchill, comparison of Churchill to the ancients. Julius Caesar is really very notable there, but also Thucydides, Demosthenes. So there's far more there than I, than I think is generally appreciated. So uh, that's my big project. Well, I think that would be very fascinating to read. Uh, Good, well, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking your time. Um, and I'll put links to your book below so anyone can read up on the comparisons between Alexander the Great and Hernan Cortes, uh, so they wish. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Classical Wisdom Speaks, a podcast dedicated to bringing ancient wisdom to modern minds. Classical Wisdom Society members can listen to the entire podcast with Professor Lyons on classicalwisdom.com. You can also purchase Justin's book, Alexander the Great and Hernan Cortez, Ambiguous Legacies of Leadership on amazon.com.